Please turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Revelation, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God, and fathers, and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will born because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. 
This morning we begin a new book series, that of Book of Revelation. We began two and a half years ago in the Gospel of John, then we moved on to the letters of John, and now we arrive at the Apocalypse, or the Revelation of John. Now we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. However, even though there is no exception to that, these things, the entire Word of God is profitable, yet there may be some use in going through these works of the Apostle John given to his hand consecutively. In order that we have in mind this great unfolding story, as you remember in the Gospel of John, of Jesus Christ and who he was and what he came to do. And then in the letters of John, of God's people, the church, who they are and how they should think and act. And in both cases, John seems to be pointing us forward. It seems to be an unfinished story. For instance, he seems to be warning us of things that are going to happen to God's people in this world, of persecution. In John 16, 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. He's warning us of false teachers. In 1 John 2, 18, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know it is the last hour. And similarly, in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So John seems to be pointing us forward to that. And then John also hints at some wonderful things that are in store for God's people in eternity. As Jesus says in John fourteen three, I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. And I think we're tempted to say along with Thomas, that Lord, we we don't know, at least not all that much. We don't know everything about you and your plan and your way. We don't know the way ahead as much as we'd like to. Tell us more. Tell us more. Well, perhaps at the time, they simply couldn't bear it. That's the explanation given in John 16, 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He didn't mean that there wouldn't ever be a time in which perhaps God's people could bear these things. Just not then. In fact, he goes on to say, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth and He will tell you things to come. Now, what do we make of that? It seems to me like the word of God. It seems to me like a prophecy of Jesus Christ. And does it enter into our mind? Do we imagine that Jesus was going to say that? And it wasn't going to to happen? It was going to be left unfulfilled? Do we imagine that this promised revelation of things to come, that it was only for a select few and we don't know who they are and it's not us? Well, I hope that's not the case. And in fact, that is precisely the subject of this morning's sermon. In the words of the first verse, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Now, there is much introductory material that we might say in this book. Too much. 
We might speak about John and his historical situation and how he ended up in Patmos and about the Roman Empire and persecutions and the history of interpretation of this book. But there is the most important introduction that could be given. It is the introduction given by God himself in this book. And that is to say that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants. You know, sadly, there are some wrong ideas about this book. There are some misapprehensions about this book of Revelation. Things like it's mainly about some incomprehensible details of the end times. No, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's mainly about him, you see. It's about Jesus Christ. Not about some obscure little details you put together like a puzzle. Or that perhaps it's of interest only to cranks and to cults. And that maybe it's to be understood rightly only by scholars. No. You see, it's, it was given to Christ for what purpose? To show to his servants. All of them. And that includes you, if you're his servant. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants. And so, we have two of the three points. First, the content of revelation. Second, the purpose of revelation. And thirdly, the benefit of of revelation. So first, the content of revelation. Again, as we see in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I have three sub-points to say. First of all, it is the revelation. The Greek word apocalypse. You know, the apocalypse. If something is covered... They're hidden. It's a collapse. Okay? That's something that's mysterious and, and completely unknown. We have no idea about it. It's, cover, it's covered. It's hidden. It's, it's not in our view. But you see, this is an apocalypse. It is the precise opposite of something hidden. It is something that has been uncovered, something that has been disclosed, something that has been revealed to us. It is the apocalypse. And therefore, we need not and should not approach this as some arcane puzzle we do for our amusement. It is the revelation. It is something that has been revealed. It is not the strange and incomprehensible mystery that has not been revealed. Now, perhaps it is not everywhere as perfectly plain as we might desire, but at its root, its basic character is something that has been revealed. And that, that's the sort of approach that we must take when we come to it. And if we read it with the rest of Scripture in mind and at hand, we might just find that it's not so incomprehensible as we might think, and certainly not in its broad outlines. And then secondly in this point, we see that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's in the genitive, what we would call the possessive, we could say it in a different way. Easily, you know, in, in English, we have little apostrophes we put to mark possession. could be Jesus Christ's apostrophe S revelation because it's his revelation in terms of its origin, in terms of ownership, in terms of possession. And what that means, it is not 
the possession. It is not the, in the ownership of some cult or any strange teacher's revelation. It's not even John's revelation properly. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And not only does it belong to him in terms of origin, ownership, or possession, but we can be sure that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ and that the subject matter is primarily Christ. Again, you can be dazzled and distracted by some of the typological language, but do not forget that the subject matter is Jesus Christ. Now, that's the case for all of Scripture in various ways. Christ is both the revealer, he's the word of God, he's the one who's come to reveal the Father to us, and he is also the one that is revealed in those things. That even in the, the, the strangest details of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, somehow that is a revelation. It bears some, some bearing on Jesus Christ. It has some relevance there. And most particularly, it is the case in this book of Revelation. It is all about Jesus Christ. You see, the thing is, it's not, we sometimes think, okay, a revelation of Jesus Christ, right? Well, there's maybe a movie, we get to see Jesus Christ, and it's like a home video, we, we see him interacting and talking and so forth, and that's the sort of thing we want when we want a revelation. But that, first of all, isn't what's given to us. Oh, and oh, by the way, even if that's what we wanted, a, a physical description, we even get that in Revelation, we get the most complete physical description of Christ anywhere to be found in Scripture right here in Revelation. But it is not the bulk of the material. Because the bulk of the material, not only here, but throughout Scripture, is what Jesus Christ said and does. That's what has been recorded for us. That's what is needful for us to understand Jesus Christ. The things that he said and the things that he does. Those are the things that he's already done, which, by the way, comprise a good amount of revelation, but also the things that he will yet do in the future. And by these things, we know Christ. We have a view of him. And that's a good thing. That means I'm not going to have to unscrew this brass uh, plaque that says, Sir, we would see Jesus when we go through Revelation. Because if you go through Revelation and you understand it, then you're going to be seeing Jesus Christ. He is the one that is going to be revealed in this. This is his revelation, and that's what it reveals. But thirdly, in this first point, it is also the revelation of things which must shortly take place. That is the content. Of course, it's a subset of what Jesus Christ is going to do. It's what Jesus Christ is going to do in the future. Things which must shortly take place. And though we have other places in the New Testament that tell us of things to come, this book in particular seems to be the fullest fulfillment of what he promised the disciples in John 16:12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, and he will tell you the things to come. Now, while it is true that many of the things in Revelation have to do with the future we must also take note of that little word, shortly. These are things which must shortly take place. And that's really quite important. Because, you see, if we think, if our mindset when we approach these things, is these are things that are going to take place untold myriads of, of millions of years from, from now, we're not going to take much notice of them. 
They're just not going to be relevant to us. We won't even think that they have much bearing on our lives because they're going to take place so long in the future that what do they have to do with us? But that's not what the Lord says. What He says is that these things must shortly take place. Now, that's not the first time. That's not the only time, by the way, that Jesus says such a thing. And in fact, actually... The second to last verse of Revelation is also going to say very much the same. Revelation 22.20 He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. He says that he's coming quickly. And the response of God's church is to believe that he's coming quickly and to say amen to that. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And it is precisely because of that, because Jesus Christ says he's coming quickly, that it is of interest to God's people. And finally, on this point, notice that it is not things that might or might not take place, things that are possible, but rather the things that must take place. In the strongest possible language, it must happen. We have that three times in this book. In verse 1, but then also in Revelation 4, 1, as the main content of the book begins. And the, the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. And then, again, in the last chapter in Revelation 22.6, the Lord God of the Holy Prophet sent his angels to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. These things will happen. There is no uncertainty here. It is impossible that any one of them should fail to happen in the slightest. And it is for all these reasons that this content, the revelation of Jesus Christ, of things which must shortly take place, are of the greatest interest to God's people. Well, that was the content. Second, we think of the purpose. The purpose is which God gave to him to show to his servants. You see... God, gave, God the Father gave this revelation to God the Son. You remember from the Gospel of John that Jesus Christ is no freelancer. He's not here on his own errand, speaking things as they come to his mind. You see, he comes on the Father's errand, speaking the words the Father gave him, no more and no less. And he's quite, you would, you would think that for Jesus Christ, who is, is equal to God, he is God, that he maybe would say things in a little bit more uncertain terms, that he says, well, mainly, usually, the bulk of what I say is directly the things that the Father gave me. But no, that's not what he says. He says in John twelve forty nine, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Nothing more, nothing less. The precise commandment of the Father, that's exactly what the Son speaks. Christ has never abdicated that office either. He has never stopped being our prophet. He continues to speak to his church and the words which the Father gave him to speak. Now, Revelation is most explicitly a part of that. God the Father has given this revelation to God the Son. Now, what's he going to do with it? Why? What's the purpose? 
This was given to Christ for the express purpose of showing his servants. Again, we know from the Gospel of John that the Father gives certain things to the Son. Most importantly, most notably perhaps, from our perspective, he gives the Son the sheep. Where did Christ is a great shepherd, John 10. Well, where did he get those sheep? Did he buy them someplace? Well, in some sense he certainly did. But mainly he was given those sheep by the Father. John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. He's given them to the Son. They are the elect people of God. As in John seventeen six, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And not only does the Father give the Son these people, He has given them some things to give to them. He's given them something to pass on to these people. And the things most particularly are words. Remember we had that sermon. It could have been anything. It could have been the money. Could have been the culture, but no, it's the words that the Father gives to the Son in order to give to those people. In John 17, 8, For I have given them the words which you have given to me. And you see how the Father has given the Son some words to show to his servants, the church. And that's in the context. That's the way we are to understand Revelation 1, 1, which God gave him, Jesus Christ, to show his servants. Now, If that is the charge that is given to the Son, then who are we to deny such words to God's people? Now, of course, we see that there is also a precise transmission of this revelation to his servant John. Because at the moment, it's still out in the air that the Father gave these words to the Son, therefore a purpose to show the church. Now, how is he going to show his church? How is, the fa- how is the Son obedient to that command of the Father? Remember, everything He other says and does is in direct response to the command of the Father with regard to His church. Now, how did He accomplish that? Well, He didn't just keep it to Himself. He then, through an angel, gave it to the Apostle John. And through the Apostle John, He gave it to the seven churches. And through those seven churches, it is given to the entire church throughout all of time. And we have it sitting in front of us today. Christ didn't just leave it in the air. But through the means of an angel, he gives it to the the apostle, who through that means gives it to the seven churches and gives it finally to us. We have these things. And that being the case, we should not, as a church, withhold them from God's people. Now, you know that I hold Calvin in the highest esteem. And his record for wisdom is nearly unblemished. But he yet was a fallible sinner. And we might know that some people point to Calvin's wisdom in not writing a commentary. He wrote a commentary in just about every other book of the Bible except for Revelation. Well, I can't settle that matter. I'm not for sure. Maybe it was wise, maybe it wasn't. But I I don't know. I wonder. I wonder. Because God has given this in order to show to his servants. And why might we want to withhold it from God's people? Why wouldn't we, if we don't understand it, pray for wisdom 
and ask for the Holy Spirit's help to understand these things. And let us not hinder the work that the Father gave the Son to do, including that these things might be shown to his servants. Well, that is the purpose. Our third and final point is the benefit. And that's where we read in verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Notice, by the way, the change in pronoun from the singular to the plural. Blessed is he who reads, that's singular, and those who hear, that's plural, and keep those things which are written. So who might these be then in the church? Well, I'm, I'm not at all to say that they couldn't mean there couldn't be multiple re- ways of understanding these things, but I think that this singular perhaps, it just might mean he who reads, the elder or minister who is reading and preaching these things. Again, the whole idea is to get this out to the church. It was sent out immediately to the seven churches for dissemination. And right from the beginning, we have this blessing on he who reads. And I think perhaps the picture is of public reading. We know that that's the way the epistles came. And that in, in one of the epistles it said, make sure you, you read this out loud. They did not, of course, as we do, and we give thanks to God for how we all have our own copy of the Bible as, as, as a wonderful blessing of God. But they didn't. And so much of what they received was from the public reading of the Bible. And then furthermore, of course, from the public exposition of these things, what we call preaching. We read it and we explain it. That's the work given to God's, uh, to the elders and, and ministers appointed in the church. And then also to those who hear, the people. Now, again, we do not want to set revelation above or beyond any other part of Scripture. We know it's all profitable, but we must remember that there is a blessing given. There is a blessing promised. We, people sometimes explain all of Scripture as the wonderful explication of God's promises, and it's true, it's the gospel. But here's a promise for you. You're going to be blessed when you hear these things. Now, it's not the mere passage of sound waves moving your, your eardrums that's going to be the blessing, of course. It's the active, willing, believing sort of hearing. But you can be assured that if you do that, you're going to be blessed. This revelation given just in order that he might show it to his people, you're going to be blessed if you, you hear it. And finally, notice that those who keep. This is not just a momentary apprehension for a second. It is the keeping of these things. It's the keeping of them in mind. To uphold, to maintain possession of them, to not let them be lost, to guard them. Like a jailer guarding some important prisoner, you're keeping this word of God. Now, by the way, I won't read all of the verses of which is contained, but keeping is a theme in Revelation, so you might have your, your eyes open for such things. Over and over and over again, Revelation 2.26, And he who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, I will give power of the nations. Revelation 3.3, hold fast and repent. Revelation 3.8, for you have a little strength, you've kept my word. Or Revelation 3.10, because you've kept my command to preserve, and I will keep you from the hour of trial. And on and on and on. Revelation 22.7, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Finally, Revelation 22.9, I am your fellow servant. 
and of your brethren the prophets, of those who keep the words of this book. That is the angel himself speaking. I'm just like you, and I keep the words of this book. Blessed is he who reads. Blessed are those who hear and keep the words of this book. Well, that's the great blessing that is promised, the benefit. So, revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ for the purpose of showing it to the servants, Christ's servants in the church, and those who read and hear and keep are going to be blessed. Three brief applications in. The first is to pray for this series. Pray for it. That Jesus Christ and his works, his words and works, would truly be revealed to us. That indeed the new Jerusalem of which we read about would be being built up before our eyes. That those would be added to the number that no man can count. And that they would be purified in this great word and fitted out in perfection for this new heavens and the new earth. This spiritual, perfect new Jerusalem. Pray that you'd have eyes to see. Because it's there for the seeing. It's, it's wonderful, isn't it? Is Christ and all these things which are yet to come. The past and the present and the future. Christ is there for the seeing. Heaven is there for the seeing. The question is where you see it. Pray that you would. Second, keep the word. As all of scripture comes with this promise of blessing for those who read and hear and obey. But that's particularly emphasized in Revelation. And it is maybe perhaps particularly predicated on faith. Now hear me, this, I'm, I'm not saying again that there is some categorical distinction to be made. But remember, if the essence of our pleasing situation before God was impossible to please God without faith, if our relationship to Christ is entirely on faith, there is something about faith. You see, we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, just for a moment, then make a relative distinction between, say, reading somewhere in Scripture, in the Old Testament, that Nebuchadnezzar was at some point uh, king of Babylon. Now, it takes some faith, because the Word of God says it takes some faith. But yet, you say, well, we know that's happened, that's history, we have archaeology, we have these other books, and, and you end up having to say, well, actually, it doesn't take all that much faith to receive that. But now how much more faith does it take to receive as absolutely true and certain and necessary things of which there, is no, there are no precedent whatsoever? Or maybe there's a precedent in something, that, something like the flood that people want to forget about. How much faith does it take to say that Jesus Christ is coming quickly and he is coming with a final judgment to put an end to this current creation and to make a new creation of the new heavens and the new earth? And so, if there is much faith to receive these things, perhaps there is much blessing as you believe them. Keep this word. And thirdly, and finally, take hope. Take hope. As we are not as those who have no end point. Perhaps in all the, the situations that one might think of, of being in the potential for despair... In the military situation would be a campaign of which there's no fixed end. And one wonders if we will ever get out. Well, 
That is not our situation in the church. And Jesus Christ wants to make sure the Father commands and the Son obeys to make sure that we know that is not our situation. We have a definite endpoint, and that's all revealed for us in this book. And we ought to therefore take hope. You know, when Daniel was, he asked for understanding to some things in the future, what was given to him was by no means as clear as what we have in Revelation. But in the end, he was told in Daniel 12, 12, Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. But you go your way to the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Now, do you know why he could do that? Why he could look forward to an inheritance? He could be at peace? Because he knew that there was going to be an end. He knew that there was going to be an inheritance. He knew that, that in fact, God was going to win. Out of good, again, it, it does to promise the soldiers fighting some sort of war of the great rewards they're going to have when it's entirely uncertain as to whether they're going to win. Maybe they'll never see those promises because they're going to lose. Well, that is not our case as Christians. There is a future beyond this present confusion, and Christ is going to win the victory, and therefore we have hope. Take hope.